0: The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. On with the show.
1: Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Crema... What do we have going today, Eric, on your Spotlight on Success?
2: Well, we have an encore this week, uh, Jackie Fisher Marketing. Uh, Jackie Fisher herself will be with us, uh, old-time friend, but just someone who's really in tune with what's going on here locally in media. So she's really fun to talk to, and I thought, what the heck? Let's do a, an encore presentation.
1: Absolutely. Looking forward to it, as always. I remember the interview from before. It was very powerful, so I'm glad she's back. Um, I'm going to hit a couple guests today in terms of uh, they're both authors. And one is uh, Paula Young Shelton, who wrote a book that's written for kids. I really like the trend that's going now in National Geographic that they're writing books for children. This book is called Just Like Jesse Owens. And uh, a sidebar, Paula Young Shelton, her father, is the former ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young. You may remember that name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a congressman. Uh, he's a, a representative. And he was certainly an icon in the civil rights movement. Spoiler alert in advance. He's 90 years old and uh, he's doing really well living um, in Atlanta right now. And so, um, again, he got inspiration, Andrew Young, uh, from his father back in the 1930s. And um The biggest message that his father always said to him inspired Andrew Young, don't get mad, get smart. And that's what really got Andrew Young focused in civil rights. Also, ESPN and National Geographic teamed up together with author Eric Swig to write a book that will help kids improve their math skills. It's called It's a Numbers Game. Football teaches math behind the sports. What better way can you teach math and to have a reason to learn it. And I know from my own experience, my uh, focus maybe was more on baseball than football, but I love statistics and that really helped me learn math. So I grabbed this interview and it was uh, really quite well done. And I think uh, if you have kids, grandkids, you really want to hear what uh, Eric has to say. Uh, let's see, voices of experience. What is this about? We talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment. And uh, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship, if you want to call into the Voices of Experience Message Center, you can call it 425-653-1166. Leave your comments about the show, anything you'd like to hear, whatever that may be. If you have anything that you want us to get on the air, we will get it on the air if you you want us to do so. Again, that number is 425-653-1166. Paula Shelton Young. Coming up in just a moment.
3: Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos... She instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at kw.com.
1: Andrew Young, civil rights icon, former mayor of Atlanta, congressman, and ambassador to the United Nations, and his daughter, Paula Young Shelton, an early childhood educator and author, teamed up together to deliver an oral history about a very special day in Andrew Young's childhood that changed his life forever. The result is a book called Just Like Jesse Owens, written by for children ages six to eight. Now, as a boy, when a local chapter of the Nazi party instigated racial unrest in their hometown of New Orleans in the 1930s, Andrew's father told him that when dealing with the sickness of racism, don't get mad, get smart. To drive home the idea, Andrew Young Sr. took his family to the local movie house to see a newsreel of track star Jesse Owens racing toward Olympic gold. The lesson? focus on the finish line. Jesse showed that working harder and smarter was better than fighting. My conversation with Paula Young Shelton. Jesse Owens, obviously, is about the book that you've written, just like Jesse Owens. From what I understand, your father's father and your father really used Jesse Owens as somebody to teach you and other people that they've had influence throughout the world. And Kind of just a brief backdrop is that uh, Jesse Owens, of course, uh, was in the 1936 Olympics. And uh, at right. that time, he uh, was actually Hitler was trying to showcase the su- superiority of the Aryan nations. Jesse Owens had Correct. other ideas. Can you tell us about that?
4: <laughs> right. So this is a story from my dad's childhood. And When he went to his father to ask him about racism, my grandfather's response was to take him to see Jesse Owens run in the Olympics. They would show it at uh, theaters on the movie reel tones. And um, so they went to a segregated theater to see Jesse Owens win four gold medals in front of a white supremacist. And basically, my grandfather's message is racism is a sickness and you deal with it by proving them wrong.
1: And so you want to pass this on to other generations, and that's why this book, Just Like Jesse Owens, it is directed towards children, correct?
4: It is for young children, and it's a way to spark conversations about racism and also to help children to learn that it doesn't matter what other people think about you, that it's important for you to pursue your goals. And focus on what you want to accomplish, just like Jesse Owens.
1: So, and one of the messages in in the book, and and what your grandfather and father have had to say, that live by, don't get mad, get smart. Not get even, but get smart. That was kind of something that they passed on. Could you elaborate on that some?
4: Sure. You know, my dad grew up in a segregated, uh, very diverse community in New Orleans, And he was, you know, a scrawny little kid, and my grandfather knew he wasn't going to be able to fight his way out of every conflict. So he taught him to respect people and to talk to them and to listen. And those are the lessons that have really guided my father through his 90 years on the planet, that you have to listen to other people and be able to share your ideas with them in order to bring about change.
1: Is that easier said than done? It had to take incredible discipline and focus to be able to do that. Were there moments, I'm sure, he was very close to Dr. Martin Luther King and his assassination that he wavered on that
4: some? I'm sure he felt challenged with standing by those beliefs, but he has stuck by that. And, you know, even when he was marching and beaten for expressing his civil rights, um, he did not turn to violence. And he learned that, you know, you have to just keep moving on and you can't get caught up in this physical fight because that's not going to accomplish anything. And, you know, we really have to learn to work together to make this place a better place.
1: Have you seen a lot of like your father's effort and of course your efforts as well, making a difference in in the community? I mean, I certainly think it has, but what do you think, uh, where have there been advancements made, and what else an obvious question remains to be done
4: no oh, well there's um, there's still plenty to do, but I think that absolutely my father's work and the work of so many others has been instrumental in getting us to the place that we are today i mean that it is discouraging to think that you know my my father marched for voting rights, and we're still trying to reclaim full voting rights for everyone and um and equality and opportunity for all people but i think we have a much better platform now we have more people in positions of power who are fighting for this same cause and and we have a greater voice and we've got to use it to bring about change
1: yeah we can thank your father, efforts and certainly martin luther king for that and many others as you say uh, who were involved Absolutely. in that effort. I, I think as far as my position in looking at it, it's just sorry to see all these efforts and the lives that lost in the 60s and seeing those efforts trying to be peeled back and and taken away. And yeah. It's been a hard thing to watch. The 60s was a very difficult time, but we were headed in a good direction. Things we're on the move and you right. had that, but now it's almost more difficult seeing people trying to remove those.
4: Something my father pointed out is that we see a lot more of what is happening now with the the advent of social media and twenty four hour news cycles. We hear what's happening immediately. Um, you know, one thing he told me is that, you know, there were churches being bombed daily in Birmingham and they didn't hear about it in Atlanta for months and months and months. But, you know, when George Floyd was killed, we knew instantly. And so somehow that makes things seem more immediate. But many of the issues are still the same, and we have absolutely made a lot of progress. And so we just have to continue to build on that progress and use the voices and the platform that we have now.
1: Tell us more about yourself and this book, just like Jesse Owens, what is your goal in this book to uh, impart on children?
4: Well, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm a first grade teacher by training, and um, I always use books to introduce lessons and concepts. And I think this book, I love to see this as a, as a way to teach children that you have to pursue what's important to you, regardless of what others are saying about you or, or whether they're telling you you can do this or not. And you have to be true to yourself. And so embracing your cultural, your gender identity, and be proud of who you are, and keep moving forward to
1: achieve your goals. Yeah, I really enjoyed the uh, graphics in the book, the illustrations, and of course the story as well. And I think it really came across as very direct, and I like one of the passages in it. I believe it was that, or maybe I read it somewhere else about the book, is that, Jesse Owens, one of the things he really stressed was
4: focusing on that finish line. Exactly. Right. So you have to you know, keep your goal in mind, stay focused, um, and, and don't worry about what other people are saying about you. And um, I think that Jesse Owens was not only a tremendous athlete, but he had such strength of character. That children can emulate and so I think he's just a wonderful example of continuing to fight for what you want to see happen.
1: Final question, what advice would you give young people who do want to make a difference?
4: I think that, you know, it's important for children to understand, young people, that they have a voice and it is important for them to express their opinions. Always being respectful and listening to adults, but not shying away from expressing your own opinion. You know, young people were at the heart of the civil rights movement. It was the Children's March in Birmingham that turned the tide. It was student activists that were in the sit-ins and the freedom rides. So we want to embrace this, these young people being activists and fighting for what they believe in and, and really support them. So I think children should just know they have a voice and they should express it. How is your father doing? He is doing great. We just celebrated his 90th birthday in March, and um, he told us he has about 10 more years of work ahead of him, so he's not slowing down yet.
1: Well, good for him. Again, a great admiration for that man, and, of course, you, you are following up in his footsteps. Keep up the great work and uh, appreciate what you've done for our country.
4: Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: You too. My thanks to Paula Young Shelton. The book is called Just Like Jesse Owens by Ambassador Andrew Young, as told to Paula Young Shelton. I developed what I call the self-employment quiz, and there are 20 questions on the quiz, and the higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One of those questions is about good judgment. Nothing has disappeared from the American landscape during my lifetime faster than good judgment. If you exercise good judgment more often than bad, you have a very good chance of succeeding in business. Unfortunately, like experience, good judgment can't be taught. Have you exercised good judgment when you have been in charge of your life? Do you demonstrate good judgment in choosing your friends or your associates? How about in the jobs you've taken or the lifestyle choices you've made. How many times have your business or personal relationships ended up in mistrust or contempt for the other person or organization? We all have baggage, but do you have a history of making bad judgment calls or repeating the same mistakes? On the other hand, if you feel that by and large, you have been happy with your choices in life, and if you are a person who generally exercises good judgment, there is a very good chance that you will succeed in business. Bottom line, You can read all the books, including mine, about self-employment and visit all the websites about succeeding in business. But your success or failure will always circle back to whether or not you can exercise good judgment when you need it. Seattle's first pro team started in Seattle in the fall of 1967, the Seattle Supersonics. I can't tell you how excited as a young boy to have a pro team in Seattle we had finally joined the big leagues. Of course, there were other major league level teams that have come and gone since then. Seattle Pilots came in 1969, gone in 1970. The Seattle Mariners, the Seahawks, the Storm, the Sounders, the Kraken, they've all come since that time. But the first voice in the region for pro sports was Bob Blackburn, and he was just referred to as the voice. He called Sonic games from 1967 to 1992 when he retired, maybe not so voluntarily, but that's a story for another day. He passed away in 2010. I had an interview with Bob Blackburn in 1997 in a segment that was called Profiles of Experience on Kixie. He came to the studio where we did this interview.
5: On this morning's U.S. West Profiles of Experience, we are very fortunate to be talking with Bob Blackburn. The name Bob Blackburn is synonymous with professional sports in Seattle. The Supersonics was Seattle's first professional sports franchise and began playing in the Seattle Center Coliseum during the season of 1967-1968. Therefore, the first professional pro sports announcer in Seattle was Bob Blackburn, who began broadcasting Sonic basketball from the very first game. 25 years and 2,325 games later, Bob retired from the Sonic microphone. How about your uh, looking at players? What would, uh, well, even not necessarily Sonics, any type of players that you're favorite over the years you were broadcasting?
6: Well, it's it's very difficult to, again to pick out favorite players because you start doing it with your own team and you're going to you're going to miss forget a lot of somebody, people. right? Yeah, I, I mean there I there's certain guys, there are certain people that obviously stand out in your mind through the years. Lenny Wilkins stands out of my mind because of the class individual, because of his great talents as a player, and his ultimately good talents as a coach. Gus Williams stands out on my mind as the guy who was perhaps the key leader with the Seattle Supersonics to their championship. So those, those are a couple of guys right there. And, of course, uh, Jack Sigma. Uh, I tell you, the members of the championship team, I have a soft spot in my heart for all of them because every time they have a reunion and get together... They always call up the old voice of the Sonics and invite him to participate. I didn't score a basket or get a rebound for that team, but I did their broadcast, and they still regard me as part of that team, and I think that's wonderful.
5: Did you get a ring or something for the
6: championship? Yeah, I see it right yeah, there. Yeah, it's wearing really right nice. there. They my gave you that. That's 1979. That 1979. It has Blackburn and the Seattle Supersonics, their logo on one side, the NBA logo on the other. The top of the ring is in the form of a basketball, and it says World NBA World Championship.
5: That's great. Did uh, you have, let's say, a fondest memory in broadcasting of all your games?
6: If I were to go to fond memories or great memories, it would take a book. But obviously, I think, Paul, if I were to take the fondest memory, it has to be the instant when the buzzer sounded and Gus Williams threw the ball high in the air and the horn started honking out in the Northwest and the Sonics had won their first ever Mm -hmm. NBA championship. It was just a special euphoric feeling at that moment. But I have arrived. I've been the broadcaster, the radio TV broadcaster of a team that is now known as the, not just the NBA champs, but really basically the world champions. They say it right on the ring here. Sure. And I think at that moment, there were, there were many other very pleasant moments of great instances of great plays that I remember, uh, but that has to be the top.
5: I'd say a personal satisfaction for you was in 1970 was the year that you broadcast the NBA All-Star Game throughout 70,
6: the world? In we did the NBA okay. All-Star Game. Well, actually, I, I had done some worldwide broadcast, or, or at least a uh, uh, major broadcast on NBC prior to that, back in the late 60s when Oregon State played in the football, uh, the Rose Bowl football game against Michigan. I did the uh, broadcast for NBC at that time, which went coast-to-coast and worldwide. So I haven't done a lot of what you'd call national-type broadcasting, but... Uh,
5: Do you have an incident uh, in broadcasting that wasn't so pleasant?
6: There have been a lot of times when I was the sonic announcer that I was also my own engineer. And I'll never forget the time that one time somebody in Chicago, we were broadcasting on the sidelines, and somebody reached down and they had the they, they had the lines the electric lines going out from the side and some people in the stands could reach down somebody reached down and pulled the plug out. Well, I didn't realize where that plug was, and here I am trying to broadcast and I finally I'm talking into a dead mic. Everything everything has gone dead, and I'm talking into a dead mic. Is this in the
5: middle of a game or? just Oh, this is during play by play. Play this by is play. Doing okay. Play by play. And right. the
6: next thing I got a call. You're off the air. Now I have to, as the engineer, I have to go find out what's wrong. So I'm in a panic situation there for a moment. I mean, moments like that used to be, I think that's one of the moments, one of the times that led to my ultimate heart surgery in 83, frankly. That kind of did it. That paying for six, six kids through 26 years of college. <laughs> that kind of adds up. <laughs> well, speaking about salaries and money,
5: uh, one player's salary today is the entire team, 12-man team of the Supersonics in 1967. Twice
6: 68. as much as the entire team in the
5: 67 season. Exactly. We hear a lot about that's destroying the sport or it's not good for the sport or whatever. What's your feeling on that?
6: Well, to me, it ultimately is going to destroy the sport. I I hate to say it. I I don't care what sport it is. But to me, the ticket prices for going to ball games now for all sports are getting so far out of reach of the common man. And to me, the common person, the average person, the blue-collar worker has been the person who has supported sports so well in the stands during the years. And now, because of all of the executive boxes, the sky boxes, what have you, it's becoming a corporate-type participation. You don't see the same Sonic fans out there that you saw 25 years ago, for, or 28 years ago when the, when the team started. It, sure. It's a lot different thing, and ultimately, ultimately, it has to take its toll, as far as I'm concerned. The Golden Goose uh, can it only lay so many golden eggs, and, and I think that it, it has to stop one of these days. i tell you what it's going to stop, too, and I think baseball is going to be the first one to see it when some teams go bankrupt.
1: And that's the voice, Bob Blackburn. My thanks again to Bob Blackburn for that interview. I still enjoy listening to that. Again, he had the voice. But more than that, you can hear the love he had for the game itself. And I do believe he just really enjoyed people. On a personal note, I attended Newport High School in Bellevue, where the Blackburn family, many of them went to school there. And Beth Blackburn was in my class, a delightful person, because she came from such a delightful family one other note he mentioned the average guy at the end of the interview not being able to afford going to an nba game i did a quick check the average cost of the price of a ticket when he said that was about 35 dollars. today 211 dollars
7: you just received some startling news you're going to need brain surgery But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure.
1: Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul K. Voices of Experience
7: is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com.
1: Kelly Hargrave has joined us, and Kelly is the author of a book called Can't Get Enough Shark Stuff. So if you have a child or grandchild, this may be an interesting book for them to peruse. Uh, It addresses some of the myths and realities about sharks, and it comes with some exciting games, hands-on activities, and even shark jokes. Here's one of them. What do young sharks play at recess? Are you ready? Tide and Seek. Okay. I promised that's the last one. So let's get to it. The first thing that I wanted to know is where does Kelly live?
0: Yes, I'm in Colorado.
1: You don't have a huge shark problem in Colorado, but you're fascinated by <laughs> sharks.
0: Oh, gosh, no. oh, absolutely. Yes. We're in a, I'm in a landlocked state. So, you know, the worst water uh, around here is probably the glass that I'm drinking right now.
1: <laughs> so it's real easy for you to say not to fear sharks, but you're in the middle of Colorado.
0: Yes, yeah, I know. Not a fair statement, right? But I did grow up on the East Coast. So I grew up in Virginia, and I, I did grow up going to um, the beaches of Virginia and North Carolina. So very used to sometimes seeing that alarming uh, news story of a great white, you know, showing up on the coast. Um, so yeah, so I am used to it, and I, I know that sharks are a kid favorite perennial character that we like to discuss, and I, I write kids' books on all sorts of topics, so this was a topic that I was really interested in, because I feel like we all have kind of this uh, same idea of what we think a shark is, but there's so much more to them, there are over 500 species, so there's a lot to discover here.
1: Do we fear sharks unnecessarily?
0: That's a I think that's the true statement. You know, we're not part of their natural diet. You know, sharks aren't out there hunting for humans. So any shark attacks that happen. Are usually, you know, they're few and far between. Um, you know, there, there are actually only a few hundred that happen and only maybe one to five deaths that happen each year. Um, usually we're just not anywhere near sharks. And with over 500 species, you know, there's so many different kinds that aren't even known for, um, attacking humans at all. They're very small or doing their own thing so far from coast in the deep ocean. So it really runs the gamut, um, as far as, uh, what a scary shark is versus, you know, what the majority of sharks are
1: like. If your picture is accurate, I don't think you were alive when the movie Jaws came out in the 1970s. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie Steven Spielberg, which I consider to be the greatest filmmaker of all time. However, I've also read and heard that that movie really added to the fear of sharks. Is there some accuracy to that?
0: It definitely added to the fear of sharks. You know, I think we all like attention-grabbing things. And sharks are kind of, they're one of the most unique-looking creatures on our planet, for sure. And whenever you see a picture or a movie about a shark, it's always, you know, they're big jaws with some flesh hanging out. Um, But usually, you know, that's just one type of shark. Um, So, yes, those ones can be a little scary, but we don't normally come across them. And most of the times, actually, when, you know, things like great whites are Um, approached by scientists or researchers, a lot of times they don't really even care about them. You know, they're on to the things that they actually know and are good at hunting. You know, we're kind of unfamiliar to them. So most of the times they kind of ignore us.
1: What are sharks afraid of?
0: Well, you know, there are some bigger sharks, like the great white and the hammerhead and the tiger sharks, that actually feed on smaller sharks. So sharks are afraid of sharks. (laughs) Um, But also in recent years, we found some research that killer whales have actually been known to take down a few great whites. Now, this is something that we're still doing research on because we know the great white is kind of the king of the ocean and nothing can bring it down. But there has been the occasional killer whale that has been successful at bringing down the great white. So that is the the one animal out there that might really give them some trouble. But other than that, um, they're still the king of the ocean.
1: What do they do that really benefits us?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, as an apex predator, you know, no matter what part of the food chain you're in, apex predators, everything that they do trickles down. So it has a great effect on every type of habitat and ecosystem um, in the ocean, but they're also big holders of carbon. You know, they themselves are hold carbon within them, but they also help regulate carbon within um, the ocean itself. You know, if we get too much carbon into the air, that contributes to global warming, which we're trying to slow down. So sharks actually play an important part on managing um, seagrass. And it's a plant that's underwater that sea turtles like to eat. And sea turtles, if they could, they'd be munching on that all the time, but the seagrass holds lots of carbon. And so if they concentrated that eating in one area, we, you know, they would destroy and so much carbon would go up into the atmosphere. So sharks are predators of sea turtles. So they'll go through the seagrass and meander through, and they'll kind of help spread the love of the sea turtles. Because sea turtles are scared of, of sharks. So that's just one of the ways that they kind of help balance the ecosystem and how that impacts the, our greater planet.
1: You mentioned global warming; it's affected. It seems everything. How has it affected sharks so far?
0: The thing, I guess, one thing that I want to point out about sharks is that um, over a hundred million sharks are killed um, every single year, unfortunately, by humans. A lot of this has to do with overfishing. Um, But, you know, sharks are big holders of carbon. And so when we kill sharks, um, that's releasing a lot more carbon into the air, but then that's also um, taking away important vessels under the water that could be holding that carbon in. So that's, you know, that's one of the ways um, that they're impacting that.
1: What is the fascination of children with sharks?
0: Oh, man. Well, I just think that they're such unique looking creatures and they're so different from what we have on land. Of course, those big old teeth are like, how can something actually have a mouth like that? It's incredible. I think you see these sharks and they just can do so much more than what a humans can do. Um, but they're also, you know, I like to think that they're big and strong and brave and fearless. And some kids can kind of identify with that and kind of look up to that in a way, you know, they they, they move through the, the ocean with such determination and and fiercity. Um And I think that that's That's something that we could all use a little bit of.
1: What specifically came about your interest in sharks?
0: I think knowing that they're a kid's favorite, and they have been covered, you know, in a lot of books. Of course, a lot of books have covered sharks before. But I think knowing that there's such a variety of sharks, you know, I was just so amazed and so in love. I fell in so in love with sharks researching and talking to shark specialists for this book because there's such a variety and so many different characteristics they look different they act different each one has something different and cool to offer so i really really had a good time researching that and bringing those the, the most fun things to light for kids to engage with to keep them reading to keep them learning and 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 really feeling invested in protecting sharks
1: what other uh, children's books
0: have you written? Oh well, I've written quite a few with National Geographic. A lot of them. Um, this has been the first one that actually really kind of spans or dives into one specific topic. But as you know, um, National Geographic is really great at bringing a variety of topics to kids. Um, I've worked on their Weird but True series, which is a fan, you know, a kid favorite where we just cover all sorts of things like travel and technology, robots, space, animals, and we put it all into one book but in really bite-sized pieces that just blow their minds. So those are the type of books that I've worked on before. And I actually do have another one that will be coming out with them called The Big Book of Wow that's coming out in November, which will be really exciting and cover some of those topics that I just mentioned. Um, So, yeah.
1: Well, good for you. Before I let you go, um, what uh, brought your passion about writing? Where did that begin?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, I've been writing um, for a really long time. I mean, when I was a kid, I was an avid journaler. Um, I just wrote about everything I saw and felt. Um, And I really, you know, I really just enjoy using my imagination. And I think specifically when it comes to nonfiction, it's just been so amazing to be able to learn so much that's um, almost fantastical about our own world. And that's why sharks are so cool, because they're kind of, I think that they're the closest thing we have on this planet to superheroes. They just have all these amazing um, attributes to them. And just the the more time you spend on something, the cooler they become, you know? And I think you can say that about pretty much anything on our planet. Just take a closer look and you'll be surprised what you learn. And I really like to inspire that in kids.
1: Spoken like a true journalist. Thank you, Kelly, for your time.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time.
1: You too. Bye now. Okay, I lied. I said the shark joke that I told at the beginning of the interview, which is in this book, would be my only joke. Well, I just can't help myself. Here's the second joke. What is the shark's favorite country? Thinking hard about this? Are you ready? Finland. And again, my thanks to Kelly Hargrave. And uh, for the jokes, you can blame her, not me. I just read the jokes. So those are Kelly's jokes or someone else's with National Geographic. The book again is called can't get enough shark stuff all you need to do is google kelly hargrave and that's spelled h-a-r-g-r-a-v-e and you can find out how you can get a copy of the book and she is also an author of a number of other children's books one more time kelly hargrave h-a-r-g-r-a-v-e
2: At Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Puget Sound, one youth, one mentor, plus one moment can unlock limitless potential. When you sign up to become a mentor with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, you are matched one-on-one with a child in your community. A child with big potential. Hundreds of local youth are waiting. Be there for one of them. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Puget Sound. Sign up today at MentorSeattle.org. That's MentorSeattle.org.
7: As
1: we all know, there are a lot of numbers in football. Every tackle that's made, rushing yards, interceptions, field goals, etc. You can go on forever. And numbers actually is very much a part of every sport there is out there. National Geographic Kids and ESPN teamed up to create It's a Numbers Game. In this case, it's football. To teach kids how digits and math factor into a football game. I spoke with author Eric Zwai. And he submits that watching or playing football can increase math skills. It makes a lot of sense. And that's what attracted me to this interview. Why did you write this
8: book? <laughs> Why did I write this book? Um, I've done a couple of books for National Geographic. Funny, the first one was just a very small, simple kind of tire, quick and dirty. They told me pretty much, you know, practically, like, on this page, you're going to do this. On that page, you're going to do that. And it was it was quite simple. The next one was was a little more involved. It was a new series they were setting up, so I guess I didn't have a lot of rules. We, we kind of made up that one as we went along. And, and I'm a big sports fan. I always have been. And it's funny, what that one was about soccer, though I'm not a big soccer fan. So that one I was a little nervous about, but we went ahead with. And this one, because I'm not really a math and science guy, I am a, I'm a, an English history geography guy, I was a little nervous about taking this one on too. But it, it's fun. I mean, I, I like the history of sports. Football has such obvious numbers connections. And honestly, at first they told me, you know, list of the statistics and stuff that, that counts as numbers. It wasn't as mathy <laughs> as it evolved to be. So I was, I was happy to jump on that. And you know, I, I found my footing around the the math as well. And as you say, I, I think it's, it's educational without being obviously educational. It's mostly a book about things that I think, you know, the kids who are going to want to read about it are, are already fans of. And if, uh, we can teach them something new, then that's a bonus. Have you seen any evidence that
1: it has, let's say for kids and the focus that they are obviously interested in sports, but it has had an effect on their uh, math and, and their skills in that
8: area? Well, this is actually the fourth book in this series. Um, there was, But the first one was basketball. There's also been a baseball and a soccer book. So my, I, I feel like, I'm sure National Geographic doesn't just blunder into these. Like they must've had an idea that this was a, a market that needed to be served and, and B was something that would kids would find valuable. And I have to think that with the books they've already done, that's been the case. Cause I, I kind of asked that question too, to my editor at one point, it's like, well, are kids who like football going to be put off by the math and kids who like math going to go, I don't care about football, but, but it seems like these books are doing well. I mean, I, this one, this one, as we're taping this today, this is, Just coming out today. So there's no evidence yet what this one's doing. But I think the basketball one's been out for a couple of years. So I I think they must be happy with it. But, you know, they don't share that sort of information with me. I'm just the author.
1: (laughs) Sure. And, um, you know, I look at uh, some of the book and like the way you approach something. And that's what I'm saying. It's not just for kids, it's for adults. And one of the calculations that you did is like the football running back, Jim Brown, didn't play as many games. And uh, because the seasons have been extended and, but you made the point that he could be considered the greatest running back of all times, because given the parameters in what he was able to play and how long, when he did, he was the only player that averaged over hundred yards a game, or he's the highest player that ran for over hundred yep. yards a game. And that would be something that you'd make a case. Yeah. Jim Brown is the best.
8: Yeah, and and it's that I mean that I didn't I don't think I actually knew that until I started reading up on him some more that he he still after all these years I mean he I think he retired in nineteen sixty seven so he's been out of the game for for forty five years fifty five years um, <laughs> math <laughs> fifty five years um, and still is the only running back for an entire career to average over a hundred yards per game and yes it's true that you know the seasons he played in twelve and fourteen game eras seasons so. You know, his totals are, are less than they are now. But he's still, I mean, he he played, what did he play? Eight seasons, nine seasons, and led the league eight. I mean, it, it's incredible. I mean, he was he was so far and away the best of his time. And, yes, I mean, Emmett Smith and Walter Payton and guys like that have, have surpassed his numbers. I think, I mean, and he's a little bit before my time, but I think anybody who saw him play not, you know, would have no problem defending him as the greatest running back of all time when I was
1: perusing your book and uh, thinking about baseball and um, looking at Billy Bean, who really arena of baseball transformed it and how you looked at traditionally before him, you had a batting average of 320. Let's draft this guy. But then he found out that yeah. you can get someone who's batting 280 and actually be a better prospect because that individual hits, runs in walks, light in games and hits when, The team needs him, and it's that sort of statistics that came to the surface there.
8: Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, I know there are, like, analytics numbers in football, too, but I don't think they've changed the way people look at a player the same way it has in in, in baseball more than anything. I mean, hockey has its numbers, too, but baseball, it really has changed the way voters vote for Cy Young and MVP and, and the way scouts draft. I think football is still probably are you big, are you fast, are you strong? And because really, I mean, yes, there are the hidden numbers, but still, it's can you survive the grind? Can you turn out the numbers that are the traditional, you know, rushing and passing numbers? But it's interesting to me, like, I, I was always a, a passing fan. I, I'm Canadian, and the CFL has always been a more open game, and it was always a fun game to watch. But I always liked the passing. But I always let you know, like Earl Campbell. I loved Earl Campbell when I was watching football as a boy in the seventies. It, it's funny to me that that the game has gone away, like it's so passing now that it's gone away from from rushing a little bit. Um, but yeah, but the numbers are still like you rush for a hundred yards in a game and a thousand yards in a season. It's still a good number, even though yeah, they're playing seventeen games instead of twelve. But so some things change, and and you do have to take that into account. But I don't think there's the same kind of analytical numbers in football i'm sure there's things that scouts look for that i'm not even aware of but it's still kind of how fast can you run the 40
1: right and then you come down to a, a, a game we're back to football and talking about uh extra points and i read that 97 i think it was 97 of extra points are made but we want to make a decision to go for two points it works about half the time
8: yeah so it, it's interesting and, and again because they've they've pushed the 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 extra point you know it's a further kick now so they're probably missing more of them than they used to but still the kickers are so the kickers just get so much better but it's interesting yeah the teams do you know choose to go for two more and i guess if you truly do make every other one if you miss it you're still getting end up with the same the same sort of points and it can be a i mean it used to always be a desperation game you know hoping to win or get back in the game but now it's a, a viable strategy i think to go for for two points after any touchdown.
1: Yeah, I wonder if you put together like a one-seater for head coaches and sell it or something and just really compact this and get to the <laughs> analytics of uh, all this. Because, yeah, I mean, what I'm fascinated by when you look at football, though, as opposed to other sports, I mean, when you don't have a timeout, you have to make the call on the play in about five seconds. After the play gets over, you're in the huddle and you think it's longer, but, you know, you're looking at your wrist and you're seeing what play to do. So you have to select a play and then get out of the huddle and get up to the line. That's lightning speed.
8: Yeah, well, it's interesting. Patrick Mahomes wrote the forward to the book, and he talks about, you know, mostly he talks about, you know, the numbers and managing the clock and how many yards for the touchdown here, how many yards for the first down. But I think, like, we we kind of think of football players as, you know, like they're the sort of stereotypic big, dumb jock kind of thing. But... To be a great football player, there's got to be a lot going on in your head. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a lot more thinking than we generally credit to football players, I think. And a guy like Patrick Mahomes must have so much, like he doesn't even realize it's math and science, but it's going through his head all the time. Just like, how, what's the angle I need to, to, to get this ball down the field? How, how much force behind the throw? I mean, he's not out there with a protractor measuring it, but his body has been trained to sort of know to do these things. Very Any good, yeah, I, mean, I, I think just, you outla- uh, you laid that, that out very well. Yeah, and I hope that kids, I mean, they've asked me this during the day, you know, does it help to be uh, 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 good at math, to play football, or does it help you enjoy the game? And I don't know that it does, but I think it will enhance how you watch the game. And as a kid, like as a kid, I, I hated math and science. I, was, I wasn't, I was you know, I didn't understand how it would apply to my life. But hopefully, if you see some examples of, how you know, this is math and science, but it's in that game that you love, you know, maybe it will make kids somewhat more receptive, more open to, to math class in a way that I never was. It was just like, oh, God, we're doing math. I hate this. Uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting. I, I guess I will never really know if that's the case, but I, I hope these books are, are doing that. I'm sure that's what S. Geographic is hoping.
1: I certainly think so, too. I, when I went through it, I was kind of thinking, you know, this, I could see where this could be, very beneficial. I didn't like math or science, but I realized my love of football and baseball, I love statistics, that draws me into yeah. it. There's got to be a reason, yep. and then you can discuss with your buddy who the best player is, and you can have a conversation on it. So, no, I think it's critically <laughs> yeah. important. I, It's I like when I was reading and going, why didn't I think of this? This is a great idea. <laughs> so.
8: Yeah, well, they're they're good at what they do, right? I mean, I didn't really think of it either. I just Agreed when they said, we want to do this. Do you want to do it? Yep, I'm there.
1: My thanks to Eric Zweig. He grew up as a fan of the Canadian Football League and roots for all the Toronto sports teams. Eric has been writing professionally about sports since 1985 and counts over 40 books to his credit. Again, the name of the book is It's a Numbers Game, Football. It's directed to middle graders about the math behind the sports. If you want to find out more about the book, All you need to do is Google that's numbers game football.
2: And welcome to this edition, this week's Spotlight on Success. I'm Eric Crema in the studios here with Jackie Fisher. Anyone that's spent a lot of time in radio knows this name. She is owner of Jackie Fisher Marketing and Media. Jackie, you're a legend.
9: Oh, my goodness.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you are. And you're so fun to work with. Um,
9: oh, thank you.
2: I love working with people that have a huge breadth of knowledge but still have that energy. Because you all your ideas are fresh, your your energy's there and you just um, bring a smile to the room. So oh, there you go. Thank
9: you. Thank you. Well I love what I'm doing. I just it's a fabulous business. I love I, well, you know, one of the things that I've always said is uh, about advertising is I take my evil power to control and manipulate <laughs> and use it for good. And I really believe that. It's like I work with clients who are already, I feel like, have good businesses when I start with them and then have happy customers. And all I have to do is, like, tell the world about them. And, you know, it's been a a very successful strategy. <laughs>
2: It certainly has. And it's mm-hmm. it's definitely been a career that has done you well as well, a yes. business. Um, but we were talking prior to coming in the studio, your backstory, and it's fascinating. Can you give a, a, our audience a little bit about how you got started in advertising sales and how it's led to where you are now with your own business?
9: The way that I got started was my husband... At the time, had a business that was in kind of on the wrong side of the wrong street in the wrong side of town, <laughs> and um, but it was called Superior Street. So I took my baby and I walked up and down the street and I talked everybody into going in this weekly publication that went to the whole county and uh, with a heading across the top that said Superior Street Shopping, and then just you know they all gave me their business cards and i took my my baby and i went into the newspaper and handed them all of this stuff and said this is what we want to do these are the people to talk to this is what we want it to look like and Then later, when it was time for the Sandpoint Daily Bee, which was um, its progress issue of the Sandpoint Daily Bee, they uh, asked me if I would sell that. And so I went to the library. I read a book on advertising, and it basically said these four things. The acronym is AIDM. So you want to get people's attention. You want to develop interest, create desire for the product or service, and then motivate people to action. And so that works.
2: And this is in Sandpoint, Idaho, correct? Sandpoint, Idaho. Okay. Yeah. And you had four children at the time. I
9: had four little kids. Yeah. I had a lot of challenges. I I was uh, living in a town with 27% unemployment. Mm. You know, I was like a full-time Super Susie Homemaker. I mean, that's what I did was I took care of those four babies and... I was involved in other things in my life, but I never—I had only had a job for five months, and that was a assistant manager of a store in Spokane. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was all new to me, but I loved it. I just—I really got into it. I oversold the progress issue for the Sandpoint Daily Bee. I got offered a job at a health club. Uh, While I was working at the health club, uh, somebody from the printer said, you should get involved in this. So I got involved with the printing firm and uh, sold printing forms and that kind of thing. And then we had a, a publication that was a real estate publication. So I had a lot of experience working with a lot of different clients. Also, I got involved in theater, community theater at that time. And somebody heard me on stage liked my voice, and asked me to start doing commercial voicing for them. So that's actually how I got involved in the radio business initially was by doing commercials. And then I was still working for the printing company. And uh, the guy at the radio station, I went to sell him some print, and he said, if ever you want a job. So (laughs) that's how I got into radio. And it was really fun, because you could do pretty much whatever you wanted to do. I had a radio program called The Sandpoint Power Company. It's like plug into the positive energy of the Sandpoint (laughs) Power Company. And I, you know, would do interviews and stuff on that and sell advertising. And, you know, I mean, I could do literally if it made money, I could do it. So it was it was a fun, fun experience uh, working in small market. But when I moved to the Seattle area, that experience was a good thing to bring into a large market where uh, sometimes people were more concerned about numbers Mm -hmm. than... I mean, I was used to working with real people and and not, you know, big companies and stuff. And I always used to say, if this doesn't work, baby doesn't get new shoes. I mean, (laughs) this has to work. So I feel like I came, you know, into the radio industry with a really good background. And I worked for a couple of radio stations and then finally got to the point where... I ended up working with a small agency, and then decided I could do this on my own. So I have had my business since 1995, mm. and my husband has been working with me since June of 2000. So and we got you know. to
2: chat with Keith. I've known Keith for many years. It's been a while since I'd actually sat down with him, so it was nice. Forty years marriage.
9: Forty years married, yeah.
2: And work together. How many years?
9: We've worked together for twenty-two years. And also, I have to tell you, when he married me, I had four kids, and now I have five. <laughs> oh,
2: nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> what it, you've living a charmed life? Yeah, and
9: and I love what I'm doing. We, um, you know, obviously because I started in radio and love radio. That's, um, you know, and I, it works. We see increases in um, store traffic. I mean, it flat out works. But, you know, we've moved on with the times and we're doing, you know, we do a lot of um, Internet stuff, Mm -hmm. social media, that kind of thing, too.
2: Well, I want first people to maybe check out your website. So Jackie Fisher Marketing dot com. Right. Yeah. Jackie J.A.C.K.I.E. FisherMarketing.com. Look at the website, but then also just call. Can they call that 425 number?
9: Yeah, sure. Okay,
2: Absolutely. 425-670-3818. That's Absolutely. 425-670-3818. And Jackie is just the way in person as she sounds right here. <laughs> High energy, lots of great ideas, but super intelligent as to what's been going on in the market and, and with different businesses and how to apply that to a plan. That really helps you. So that's why I wanted you to come on here. We do have some small business owners that listen to this program, and I think they could value from your knowledge.
9: Thank you so much. It's been really nice to spend this time with you today, too. Thank you. And, And anyone's free to call if they have questions or want to knock some ideas around.
3: Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos. She instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at kw.com.
2: What great interviews, Paul. Really, really enjoyable. And I learned a lot. So great job with the interviews you had. Really appreciate it.
1: Back at you, too, Eric. Thank you.
2: Mm. Great edition of so, Voices of Experience this week.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And I just want to, again, thank you for all your efforts. And uh, back to the audience and saying to them, we certainly appreciate you listening to the show and the feedback that we get. It really does help. You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425 425- 653 1166 and give us your comments about the show. What would you like to see more of? And uh, any any comments, again, it's wide open. And if you want us to get your comments on the air, just let us know and we'll be happy to do that. Again, that number is 425-653-1166. Just a reminder, if you don't know this, Voices of Experience airs on Wednesdays on Kixi at 3 o'clock p.m. You probably know that if you're listening to it now. But it is also simulcast with Hubbard Sister Station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And then Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 a.m. And certainly you can listen to the Voices of Experience podcast at any time. And really, all you need to do is Google Voices of Experience now. You can call up any podcast. Uh, My name is Paul Casey. And again, I want to thank Eric Crema, host of Spotlight on Success, executive producers, Steve Mills and Benny Mathers, really appreciate their efforts. And of course, Eric Ryder, who stitches us all together as we do this show. Absolutely. Word of the week, be fair, be honest, and the truth will take care of itself. Keith Jackson.
0: You've been listening to the Voices of Experience Radio Network. No promotional fees have been paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And finally, experience is our best teacher.